Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I would like to thank Infinity Energy Services for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. You'll learn more about them during this episode. Thank you again to Infinity Energy Services. So in New Jersey, solar is very attractive. If you own the system, you basically could own a long-lived asset the last 20 to 30 years within three years because of federal incentives and the strong SREC program. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. This podcast, episode 60, is a presentation about developing renewable energy and opportunity zones. I speak about the New Jersey solar market. The other speakers are Patrick Moran from Dwayne Morris. He speaks about opportunity zone investment. And Victoria Zellen from Possible Planet speaks about pace financing. We spoke at the Opportunity Zone Bootcamp and Pitch Competition at the Brightfields event in Newark, New Jersey in October of 2019. The Brightfields event was organized by Brownfield Listings, which is a property marketplace and project workspace for real estate with reuse challenges. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. Thank you for listening. I first want to thank Brightfields and Dan and the team for having me speak at this conference. I'm actually going to focus more on solar. And then I would also like to thank NGIT. I actually lived in Newark for two years. I went to Rutgers, Newark, did my MBA here, and lived two blocks away. I was an RA in graduate housing. So it's a little surreal to be back here. And we used to actually hang out at the Student Center all the time, a very long time ago. But I could tell you it was a lot of fun. Anyway, uh, to get to the main topic, I'm focusing really on solar energy. What is solar energy? Why New Jersey is a great market? So just a kind of a brief description of Renew Energy. We develop projects in the Northeast, Mid-Atlantic, and California. We focus on commercial, industrial, and utility scale. We're actually doing the first solar project with the New York Housing Authority. That's on 38 different buildings in Manhattan and Brooklyn. And they're actually all in opportunity zones. I know we've been talking more about brightfields and landfills. But there's obviously at these opportunity zones with multifamily housing, affordable housing, there's a huge opportunity that I could go on and on about. We've also been very involved with SREX. I don't know how familiar the audience is with SREX. It's basically an environmental commodity to incentivize development. We brokered about $28 million in SREC transactions. If you're familiar with the New Jersey market, the SREC program's very robust. And we manage about 12 megawatts of new projects in New Jersey where we do SREC management. We also helped one of our clients because we also are a consulting firm where we basically source project opportunities from other developers that they ended up closing on, which was 11.2 megawatts. Brief background of myself before I started Renew Energy. We're actually based very close here in Jersey City, New Jersey. Seven years ago, I was actually at Solar City Tesla in their project finance group. I started their SREC trading desk. And then before that, I worked at Vanguard Energy Partners, which uh, is a national solar installer based in New Jersey that's built over 100 megawatts worth of projects. And then I worked at a private equity fund called Ridgewood Renewable Power, where we invested in renewable energy projects, not solar, but landfill gas, hydro, biomass. And I worked at Deloitte and Touche in their energy practice. So that's kind of a brief background about me. The podcast, as Dan alluded to, is called the Solar Maverick Podcast, that we come out with a weekly episode every Tuesday. It's about solar and entrepreneurship. Actually, we had Dan interviewed on the podcast. It's episode 46. And as he said, it is one of the most popular podcasts in solar on iTunes. 
I think everyone pretty much knows the technology behind solar. I'm actually a finance person, not an engineer, even though people assume I'm an engineer. But you know, obviously, sun hits the panel, then it's converted to usable energy, and then it's used to power homes and other sort of buildings. Just kind of give you a high level about solar that you probably aren't familiar with. Federal incentives is one of the big things that it's allowing a lot of development of solar. There's basically a 30% investment tax credit, which basically goes on the price of the system. And then there's accelerated depreciation. Solar is a long-lived asset that lasts 20 to 30 years, but you're able to accelerate it with five-year makers. So basically, 50 to 60% of the project cost is paid for by uh, federal incentives. One of the big things is that the solar ITC is actually going to be stepping down. You can see the schedule. Next year, it's going to be 26%. And then for commercial, industrial, and utility scale projects, 10%. There is legislation to extend the ITC or keep it at 30%. I'm a little skeptical whether that will happen because the president is not pro-renewable energy or believes in climate change, but we're obviously working really hard with different lobbying groups and other efforts to hopefully keep it at 30%. Um, an interesting thing that I find interesting is basically you could qualify for the 30% if you purchase 5% of the project cost this year. So what we're seeing in solar is that it's very difficult actually to find solar panels because people are actually using that 5% harboring for panels. So it's interesting to see now in the third or fourth quarter of this year, we're seeing panel prices go higher or people are stockpiling and warehousing panels and even their businesses that are actually taking advantage of the scarcity that we're seeing in the third or fourth quarter. New Jersey actually is one of the biggest markets for solar. People are really surprised to hear that because obviously it's not a state that gets a lot of sun compared to California, Arizona, Hawaii. But the great thing about New Jersey is that it has very high electricity costs, specifically like the Northeast states have very high electricity costs. But then also it has a very strong state level incentive that I mentioned, the solar renewable energy credit. Uh, just to give you an idea, like the current 2020 SREC is basically priced at $230 per megawatt hour. So that's like 23 cents per kilowatt hour. Just to give you an idea, commercial customer basically pays 10 to 13 cents per kilowatt for their electricity. So this is almost 60 or 70% higher of what their electricity cost is. And then I mentioned the federal incentive, the ITC and the accelerated depreciation, which make up basically 50% of the project costs. So in New Jersey, solar is very attractive. You could, if you own the system, you basically could own a long-lived asset the last 20 to 30 years within three years because of federal incentives and the strong SREC program. So as you can see, I'm not going to walk through all the numbers, but the big thing is that New Jersey is the seventh most ranked state in solar. You could see we have a huge economy related to solar energy. So $9.5 billion that was spent total in the state for solar. Just last year, it was 783 million. And then its growth projections, this is provided by SIA, which is the National Lobbying Group for Solar, which we're actually a member of. It ranks 11th. And a key thing actually to look at is the percentage of state electricity from solar. Right now, it's 4.51%. The reason why that's actually important is because once it reaches 5.1%, the current SREC program is going to be phased out. 
So right now, they're working on the next incentive program for solar. It's called actually a transition program, which is going to be a fixed SREC program. But it looks like the incentive is actually going to be a lot lower than it was in the past. I mentioned to you $230 per SREC. Right now here, it could be in the range of 120 to 140. So what you're seeing actually in New Jersey right now is everyone's aggressively trying to build projects to be able to qualify under the original SREC program. Based on our estimates and talking to different people in the industry, we think that by March of 2019, will hit the 5.1% and then go into the new SREC program, which is still to be determined. And we're actually actively, we're part of two lobbying groups in New Jersey, which is working with the governor's office and the Board of Public Utilities and the New Jersey Office of Clean Energy to help come up with a fair incentive. And then here's just like showing you the annual installations. And that 2019 number is basically uh, half this year, and there's been less development happening in New Jersey because people want more guidance on what the transition program is going to be. But we think once there's guidance, you'll see a lot more development, and you'll see there's peaks and valleys to this graph, which I won't go into really too much detail of why that's happening. But what's happened is, it, uh, based on the state level incentive, the 13, 14, 15, it declined substantially because the SREC market decreased substantially, where the price, instead of 300 to 400 in the past, went down to $70. So that changed the economics. But then solar has gone down substantially in price, meaning the cost of panels have gone down 400 to 500% in the past five years. But then also the efficiencies, meaning how much usable light that you're able to convert into usable energy has also increased substantially. And that's why you're seeing a lot of development of solar energy. So this is kind of what I talked about before about how New Jersey has always been a leader in solar. Really, it's been the state level incentives. Actually, it goes back to, I'm trying to, Governor Corzine, he actually came up with the first sort of SREC program. And then actually, Governor Christie, when there was an oversupply in the market and the solar market actually decreased substantially, he came up with the Energy Act of 2012 that helped actually rebound the solar market. I think another thing that is really helpful, I know we're talking about opportunity zones, but New Jersey has committed actually to a three-year pilot for community solar. And basically they're allowing community solar for the next three years, and it's basically 75 megawatts per year. The state has given a high priority to the following, low moderate income and environmental justice inclusion, but also siting with priority given to landfills, brownfields, area of historic fills, rooftops, parking lots, and parking decks. You actually can't develop or build solar in uh, Greenland or farmland because that Solar Act of 2012 doesn't allow it because so much solar in New Jersey was built on farmland that now in the state of New Jersey, they don't allow it. But the reason why this is actually exciting combined with opportunity zones, a typical utility scale project, when you sell it, let's say in PSCNG, which is the utility service territory that we're in, you would get two cents to four cents per kilowatt hour. The exciting thing about community solar is that you're selling it to businesses and residential customers. So the range of prices that you could charge is between 12 to 19 cents per kilowatt hour, which is a lot higher than you would in a traditional utility scale project. So it's basically a community solar project is where you have a solar project 
and then you could actually buy solar energy through virtual net metering from that if you're in that utility service territory. So a lot of developers, us included, are aggressively trying to develop community solar project. The interesting thing, the deadline for the first 75 megawatts was last month. And mind you, the pilot is only 75 megawatts per year times three, which is 225 megawatts. They got 650 megawatts worth of projects from it. The state actually put out a press release about how great community solar will be on the development of solar. This is just briefly showing the reason why we've also seen a lot of development in renewable energy is companies having 100% renewable energy goals. So 6.5 gigawatts in 2018. A lot of states as well, like New Jersey, New York, have goals of 100% renewable. Specifically, I think New Jersey has 100% renewable. I think by 2045, but I could be wrong on the year. And then this just shows the top 25 corporate solar users. And we're going to actually have Patrick go into more on, on how opportunity zones and renewable energy development intersect. Thank you. So given that Benoit's covered a lot of what I'm going to talk about, and I'm assuming you all by this time in the day have already covered a lot of the nuts and bolts of opportunity zones. Is that a fair assessment? Okay. So I don't need to tell you what the benefits are in terms of deferral and reduction and potential exclusion after 10 years. You're good with all that. Let me begin by saying that, well, first of all, my name is Patrick Miranda. I'm an energy attorney with the law firm of Dwayne Morris. We are headquartered in Philadelphia, but I'm from the D.C. office, and we also have a couple of offices in New Jersey, as well as 29 offices throughout the U.S. and actually globally as well. So before we get started, I just want to give the standard disclaimer that the views and opinions that I express are my own and not necessarily the views of Dwayne Morris or its clients and that this presentation should not be viewed as legal advice and definitely not as tax advice. I'm not a tax attorney, I'm an energy attorney. I'm just gonna skip over the Opportunity Zone 101 with the exception of going into some drilling down a bit on qualified Opportunity Zone businesses because there are some aspects of that that are relevant to developing renewable projects. And I'll spend more time talking about kind of what I call like the Project Finance 101 and that will pick up a lot of the pieces or pick up from a lot of the trails that Benoit has laid out for us. And then that will actually tie into what Victoria is going to talk about. Just talk a little bit about how to structure a qualified, unless you guys are all good with how to structure a qualified opportunity fund. I'm getting some nods, yes. All right. Talking about a qualified opportunity zone business, it's a trader business where at least 50% of its gross income is derived from the active kind of trader business in the opportunity zone. And there is three safe harbors. Maybe you guys have talked about that this morning, but there's something very critical to developing a renewable energy project. And in particular, what Benoit just talked about, community solar projects that is helped by those safe harbor provisions. Something else unique to developing a renewable project, and I think it would be especially difficult to overcome if you're building a wind project, is that at least 70% of the tangible property has to be located within a qualified opportunity zone. And if you're familiar with wind projects, they not only cover several towns, but several counties. So I think it would be difficult to site the entirety or at least 70% of your wind project within a qualified opportunity zone. But a solar project and even something as, as large as utility scale or community solar, I think definitely could fit within the 70% requirement. Something else I wanted to point out 
is I'm sure you guys have already covered this morning that a qualified opportunity zone business cannot be a sin business, which includes a liquor store, massage parlor, hot tub facility, suntan facility, racetrack, or other gambling facility, a golf course, or a country club. But noticeably absent from this list are cannabis growing facilities. And in those jurisdictions where cannabis is legal, to whatever degree, and people have those facilities, those, as I'm sure you can imagine, those facilities use a ton of power. And many of those owners are now looking to renewables, not only for all the wonderful green aspects, but also to have their own independent source of power for those facilities, not just renewables, but also microgrids in particular. And some of those jurisdictions have laws capping the amount of power consumption that grow facilities can use. So, and many of those are actually happen to be located within opportunity zones. So just planting that seed in your mind, no pun intended, possible <laughs> investment opportunities. So qualified opportunity zone businesses are essentially structured in one of two ways. You have direct investment by the qualified opportunity fund into the business property or a two tier structure where you have the fund and developer and perhaps other parties entering into a partnership or a joint venture for the Qualified Opportunity Zone business that will then own the assets or the property. Something to bear in mind as we work through the project finance concepts here. So you guys, I'm sure, have already heard that you know, there was the most recent regs came out in April of this year. The only one I'm going to talk about here is the safe harbor for the 50% gross income test and what's most relevant. So you have you know three safe harbors. One essentially is that you can meet the safe harbor so long as 50% of the services performed based on hours are within the OZ, so long as 50% of the services performed based on by the amount paid to the employees or contractors are within the OZ. And the third is that so long as a tangible property, the business is in the OZ and the management or the operational functions are performed in the OZ and each are necessary to generate 50% of the income. All right, so none of these bullets, and then the third is a facts and circumstance test, none of them really illustrate the point I was going to make, which is that within the same set of regulations, there was a an example of having a service like an Amazon, where you have the facility located within the OZ, but your customers are outside of it. So you're making your widgets in the OZ, but you're shipping them outside of the OZ. And well, does that qualify? According to these regs or these proposed regs, yes, it would qualify. How is that relevant to renewable energy? Well, if your solar installation is within the OZ, but it's a community solar installation, and your customers, subscribers, are outside of the OZ, so you're transmitting your power outside of the OZ, according to these proposed regs, that facility would still qualify as a uh, qualified opportunity zone business. So now we're going to talk a little bit about Project Finance 101. When you hear the term Project Finance, it means financing of a company created for the specific purpose of owning, constructing, and operating a project with limited or no recourse to the project's sponsor. What this means is that if you're going to be developing a renewable project, you're going to create a project company, which is a newly established either a special purpose entity or special purpose vehicle, depending which term you prefer to use, that is legally distinct from you as the developer. And project financing means that the debt is non-recourse to you. Instead, the lender looks to the assets of the project company and not to you one level up as the developer. That will be more relevant in a moment. 
project finance, or I should say the, the financing of renewable projects often has equity, and that typically comes in the form of short-term equity in exchange for various tax incentives, and Benoit's already talked about the ITC incentive tax credit. For purposes of brevity and simplicity, we're, this panel is just focusing on solar and the ITC, and then Victoria will talk about C-PACE or PACE or C-PACE as well. So then another concept is the off-taker. So you have this solar facility, you're generating power, but you got to sell it to somebody. That's your off-taker. Typically, if it's a utility-scale project, or even, as Benoit pointed out, a lot of corporations now are, are having renewables and solar in particular developed for them so they can meet their sustainability goals, that company will be the off-taker, and they will often enter into what is called a power purchase agreement, or a PPA. And then this last point here, also Benoit did a great job of highlighting, which generally are referred to as RECs here in New Jersey and a few other jurisdictions where there are carve-outs for solar. Renewable energy credits are called SRECs. So one REC or one SREC represents one megawatt hour of electricity generated by, in this case, a solar facility. And the RECs or SRECs may be bundled with the power purchase agreement or they may be unbundled and sold separately. So here's a sort of a generic structure. I just want to show you this one real quick to see how sort of these pieces fit together. So you have the power purchase agreement with the off-taker. Another issue that often comes up is interconnection with the utility. So you need to have an interconnection agreement in place. O&M, after the, the facility's gone into service, you need to have contract with somebody to operate and maintain it, and then an EPC agreement to actually build it in the first instance. And it's going to drill down a little bit more on tax equity. Benoit talked about that in terms of the ITC, as well as accelerated depreciation, often through makers, the modified accelerated cost recovery system. So many project sponsors, the developers, don't have sufficient taxable income to utilize uh, these tax benefits. So they'll enter into financing structures with what are known as tax equity investors, to take advantage of these benefits. And so these structures often take the form of either a partnership flip or a sale leaseback or an inverted lease. And I'll go into a little bit more detail on one of those in a moment. But to obtain the ITC benefits, the tax equity investor must put its dollars at risk. So therefore, it enters, enters into financing structures, one of these, whether it's a partnership flip, sale leaseback, or invert lease, prior to the time the project is placed in service. I have up there pre-COD, that's not necessarily technically correct, really placed in service means when all the permits have been issued and the interconnecting utility has given the facility its permission to operate, its PTO. That's when the facility is considered to have been placed in service. So of these structures, the partnership flip is by far the most common. I've seen a statistic saying about 80% of tax equity structures are the partnership flip. And what that entails is that the sponsor and the tax equity investor form a partnership and the sponsor contributes a some amount of equity to the project, while the tax equity investor contributes a significant amount, usually around 40%. And all of the, or not all of, most of, about up there, I have 99% of the income, losses, and credits are allocated to the tax equity investor prior to the flip date with 1% to the project sponsor. And then after the flip date, then the allocations switch and the, about 95% will be allocated to the sponsor, and at least in this example, 95% to the sponsor, and then only 5% to the tax equity investor. And the flip date is determined by the tax equity, either one of two ways, the tax equity investors target IRR. So when they've hit the returns they've wanted, then the project flips, 
or they'll have a set date and the project structure will flip on that date and usually the uh, tax equity investor will have made sure that they've hit their returns by that date. So Benoit already talked about the fact that the ITC is stepping down. One thing I do want to highlight from this slide deck is that the ITC is available that the year that the project is placed in service. So we use our example of our community solar facility. It's placed into service in 2020. That means that 100% of that investment tax credit, that 30% that, assuming that we have met the requirement of starting construction in 2019, that 30% is available right then and there. However, that credit vests over a five-year period. So if that project is sold within the five years, then that ITC, that credit, is subject to recapture from the IRS. So let's move on to putting these concepts together. So generally, a project located in a qualified opportunity zone, utilizing funding from a a QOZ or QOF rather versus one outside of a QOZ, we'll see an increase in returns. I've seen the estimates anywhere from 200 to 300 basis points to 300 to 500 basis points. The levelized cost of a project can be lowered by having your project in a qualified opportunity zone because the funding available from a qualified opportunity fund is less complex and less expensive than that of through a uh, ITC structure. So that lower cost of capital will contribute greatly to lowering the levelized cost of energy, which means your project could pencil better rather than being outside of an opportunity zone. However, it's not a guarantee. A project that doesn't pencil outside of an opportunity zone most likely won't pencil by placing it inside of a qualified opportunity zone. So what I always like to say is that the opportunity zone program can't make a bad renewable energy project good, but it can make a good renewable energy project even better. Another thing to bear in mind is that these projects bring tax revenues and jobs to distressed communities that certainly need both of those. So last slide, the benefits of combining OZ funding with ITC funding is that the OZ funding provides you some flexibility in how you're structured. Showed you that one slide of the two-tier structure. Some things to consider when twinning OZ funding with ITC funding is that tax equity investments, like I said, are complex and can be expensive. So you can reduce those expenses by using OZ capital. The corporate tax rate was reduced from 35% to 21%, meaning that there's less appetite for tax credits and depreciation. So there might be a gap that needs to be filled and that can be filled with OZ funding. And then to maximize benefits for both programs, December 31 is a critical date. You already know with respect to OZ funding and Benoit's already highlighted that with respect to the ITC. And so I'm gonna stop here and let Victoria come up and tell us about PACE financing and how that fits into this big picture. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I would like to thank our sponsor of this episode of the podcast, Infinity Energy Services, which is a turnkey solar development company with a focus on origination of opportunities between Maine and Virginia. They use their ability to structure financing and EPC projects as value add with their partners. To learn more about Infinity, go to their website, www.infinityenergyservices.net or contact Tom Laredo, who's the Director of Project Origination. His number is 732-370-2446. I also interviewed Michael Kushner, who's the President of Infinity Energy Services on episode 49 of the Solar Maverick Podcast. Thank you again to Infinity Energy Services for sponsoring the podcast. Hello, 
I'm Victoria Zellin from New Jersey PACE. New Jersey PACE is an initiative of Possible Planet. We're a 501c3 nonprofit, and our mission is to develop financing solutions for a clean economy. We're going to talk about PACE. How many people have a working knowledge of PACE? Oh, that's great. How about uh, just some familiarity with PACE? Okay, people who've never heard of PACE? Oh, good. Okay, that's about normal for groups. CPACE stands for Commercial Property Assessed Clean Energy. It's really low-cost, long-term financing that is for renewables, energy efficiency, and in some states, resiliency. And in New Jersey, it will be for resiliency. It's for upgrades, gut rehab, new construction in some states, not all states. In New Jersey, we expect to have that. So why is this important to you and at an Opportunity Zone conference? What people have been doing with CPACE is using it to fill gaps in the capital stack. And this is a pretty illustrative example, 60% bank debt, about 20% opportunity zone, other equity, other incentives, and 20, actually 20 to 30% can be in PACE funds. And PACE funds are considered about half the cost of mezzanine financing. It's running around 6%. So from the point of view of the weighted average cost of capital, having a PACE loan versus mezzanine financing has, and I'll show you an example later, increased the internal rate of return on a project by percent in an opportunity zone. So PACE is a great tool. Well, I'm going to tell you a little bit about where it stands in New Jersey, but we don't have PACE yet. We, should ex we expect to have it by early 2020. Many states around us have it in some form or other, 36 states in all. While it is considered national PACE, it's a state-by-state -state program, and I'll tell you about the mechanics that make it that way. This is why you should be interested. What I'm going to talk about is the financing basics, how it works in an opportunity zone, and we'll talk a little bit about some alternatives that our group as a nonprofit, having worked on this for many years in New Jersey, being frustrated along with a lot of other people about the pace of pace in the nation, we developed some alternatives that are pace-like. Nothing's as good as pace, but in places where pace is not, which is many places in the United States, including New Jersey right now, these alternatives are really good. And if we have time, we'll talk a little bit about PPAs and how they compare to PACE and PACE alternatives. So PACE, what it is basically. So you're looking at a no money down, 100% financing. You don't get that in too many places these days. It's up to 30 years, the average useful life of the improvements. So when you stretch out that loan over 20, 30 years, what happens is that the energy costs more than cover the amortization payments. So it's a real no-brainer. It's cash flow positive immediately. But how does that happen? Banks, before PACE happened, and continuing, you could probably get an energy efficiency loan from a bank, but seven to 10 years might be the max. Nothing goes like 30 years. And how that's possible is that states consider that energy efficiency, clean energy, is a public benefit. And what that means is that how this has been designed is the PACE loan is attached to the property as a special assessment, like a sidewalk or a sewer or a library. It's an individual assessment. It's not blanket, it's by property. It's actually voluntary by the property owner. So a voluntary special assessment is placed on the property. It becomes a senior lien because it's really on the tax bill. It becomes a tax lien if it's not paid. Very serious thing has attracted billions of dollars of investment in this area because it's very secure. It's as secure in New Jersey as paying your taxes. People pay their taxes. And so this has been just a real boom in the capital market. It's really the fastest growing new asset class is PACE. 
So you've got this special assessment on your tax roll. Uh, you pay it off as you would pay your taxes. The, your mortgage, your senior debt, your mortgages, your mortgage holders have to consent to this because in Mortgage 101 they say don't let anybody come in front of your mortgage and a payment will come in front of your mortgage. But how it's set up is that only the annual payments, the annual amortization payments come in front of the mortgage. It's non-accelerating and non-extinguishable, even in the situation of bankruptcy foreclosure. And the PACE lien, or the special assessment, stays with the property. So when you sell it, transfers to the next owner. And for that reason, it's off balance sheet. It's a big thing for property owners to have a piece of financing that is off balance sheet. One of the other things about PACE and one of the other things that makes it very slow for acceptance in the market is not only do you need a state law, because to use the, the tax mechanism you have to have that, but every municipality has to pass an ordinance in order to use PACE in that municipality. So I've covered some of the benefits that you save money on energy. The property owner owns the equipment, whether it's energy efficiency or renewable energy. So you get the ITCs, the SRECs, makers. And what I haven't mentioned is it can be prorated to tenants. Being a tax, just like any other tax, it's prorated to your tenants. And your tenants are going to see a drop in their energy bills. It will work the same way for the tenants as the owner. It's basically a sustainability, health, competitiveness, increases your net operating income. And as I said, it fills the capital stack at about 6% versus you know 12 to 15% on mezzanine financing. And that's why it's been so successful. An example done by Terrapin in Investments with PACE and without PACE, there's a percent increase in internal rate of return. And that's because in without PACE, they're looking at 35% mezzanine or equity. And with PACE, they only have to have 20% because they, in this example, they have 15% of a PACE loan. Actually, we found three projects that have done PACE in an opportunity zone so far. And we could talk about why that is in the question period. Uh, but you can see this is pretty traditional. The PACE portion is 14%. And this is new construction, rehab, a combination. This one is going to be looking like a lot of our projects in Newark in some areas where the building is still great bones. They do gut rehab. This one was a warehouse turned into a self-storage facility. And they used $1.2 million in PACE financing. So I had mentioned that we anticipate PACE bill passing in late this year or early next. EDA is going to run the program centrally. We'll be hearing more about that. What has been happening in the rest of the country, there's been about $1 billion financed in, since about 2008, 2009, 2,000 projects, 16,000 jobs. And because this has been slow, by the way, the residential PACE program is over $5 billion at this point. So it has just grown by leaps and bounds. We can talk more about that if people have questions about residential. But since this is opportunity zones, we're sticking with the commercial. So I told you that we have developed some alternatives at Possible Planet and New Jersey Pace. So these alternatives were really based on Pace features, but they don't require state and local laws, which means it could be done anywhere at any time. It's not, we didn't invent any new financial structures, we just put different ones together. And we can talk more about how they work. So we're looking for pilot projects of at least a million dollars for energy efficiency, renewable energy combination, could be some resiliency. We're working with a very major impact investor that was one of the first people to invest in PACE, always really frustrated at this. So we're looking at alternatives to really scale energy efficiency, renewable energy, and commercial buildings. And the projects that do the first demonstration projects will get great visibility with this impact 
fund. And we've also got a, a grant pending with the Department of Energy to test the scalability of this solution and working with other major market players on it. The two alternatives, NICE, New Intercreditor Clean Energy Financing, and DREAM, Deed Registered Renewable and Energy Efficiency Measures. NICE operates very much like PACE, and it can be turned into PACE. So if you start out with a NICE loan, you can make it into a PACE loan when PACE becomes available. And DREAM works more like an energy services agreement, and that is an off-balance sheet product. NICE, the first one, actually is on balance sheet. That's the probably the biggest drawback of NICE and the things that we couldn't get it to do. It's very hard to get something off balance sheet, and PACE does that because of the tax element of it. Here's a slide that compares PACE and with NICE and DREAM. And you just look at the green boxes and see if you consider on the left, those are the benefits. You're going to want as many of those benefits as possible. So wherever you can't get that benefit, like PACE, you can't do it unless you have a local law and a state law. And in NICE, the thing that we're, people may go from NICE to PACE to get it off balance sheet. And then I said we'd do a little on PPA versus PACE. And PPAs are, might be a little unusual in an opportunity zone. You might be just buying the equipment outright if you're doing solar. And we just recommend that you use PACE, where if, as long as you have PACE, but you might consider that NICE or DREAM in an opportunity zone, that would work just as well. Key differences between PPAs and the others is that when you have a PPA, you don't own the equipment, you can't get the ITCs, you can't get the SRECs or the makers. That's what my piece is. I'll sit down and we can answer questions. I you mentioned that, if you put a presentation, that the ITC credits, to get the ITC credits, I guess you mentioned that once the debt is non-recourse with respect to the ITC, is there a reason for that? Or like how does that work in terms of being able to get the credits? Don't you have to be at risk to get the ITC? Don't you have to do that with the Yes, so those are two. And are you able to overlap to get the depreciation and the ITC, you said? Yes. And doesn't the depreciation require at risk as well, some sort of a guarantee or pledging or collateral or something like that? Correct. So, so to get both to get both. Well, first of all, the project financing debt is separate and distinct from the tax equity financing. So those are not the same things. So they're, as to use the term that uh, Victoria used, they're different pieces of the capital stack. Right. So in terms of the tax equity investor will be distinct from the lenders who are giving the project finance lending. The tax equity investor has to be at risk. They have to have invested prior to the project being placed in service in order to receive the ITC and accelerated depreciation. So where, I'm not sure where the question so was. recourse that is with respect to what, the project? Yes, to whatever gap in funding you have with respect to. So everything has nothing to do with the investor is what you're saying. It's a right. That, okay, I misunderstood that slide as well. Okay. Can you speak to About 200 banks and financial institutions have given consent to PACE loans. So yes, it is challenging. We recommend that that starts early in the process. Usually a property owner knows whether they have any, have the kind of credit with their banker 
that they'll look at something unusual. It's one of the things that you want to ask, are you willing to go to your mortgage company and say you want to put a PACE loan on and it's going to prime your mortgage for the annual payments, which might be, you know, like two to three percent of your property value. I mean, it might be a very small amount, but many bank loan officers or, or banks are skittish about doing anything that doesn't follow the typical laws, or not laws, but practices. Why they are doing it, there's a couple of reasons. One is an obsolete asset that they are financing, not much good. It's not going to be rented or owned for very long. They've got to make some way to improve it, and this is really the best way to do it. It gives their client more cash flow to pay their mortgage, and it's non-accelerating. Unlike other, like the mortgage, if you don't pay your mortgage, the mortgage company can call the whole thing. With the PACE loan, the only thing that's payable is your annual payments. One year of annual payments. You don't pay your sidewalk bill for the five years in the future, you just pay it every year. So that's the only portion that, that uh, primes the mortgage. In the PACE world, they're very sophisticated people. The capital providers are the ones that usually do the negotiation with the banks, and they've been pretty successful at that, but not everyone does it. The other thing is that if the client is a you know, really great client, has a good business, They'll just refinance with another bank that will do PACE. And the best time, if you're in an opportunity zone, what you might want to consider if you're buying a property, the most leverage you have is when mortgage companies are fighting for your business. And if you make it a condition of the transaction that they allow a PACE loan, even if you don't know if you're going to need one, it's a good idea. We've heard that. It's been working because if they want to get the business for the mortgage, they're going to be willing to do that. Thanks, it's a great question. It is one of the key things in PACE. I don't know who would be best to answer this, maybe Benoit. So we've spoken with developers and about putting solar on warehouses, and there's some concern that was expressed about doing so would limit their tenant base or who would be interested in using that property, and the developer not wanting to limit themselves in that regard. I guess any strategies or what you found so obviously there's a, a ton of benefits to doing this but i guess what is most effective in getting developers past that hurdle or concern yeah that's actually a challenge that that's a great question we deal with all the time because a lot of times when you work with REITs like real estate investment trusts their hold period for the project is not that long maybe eight to twelve years as i said solar's a long-lived asset that last 20 to 30 years. So they don't want to encumber the asset by having the solar project there. And potentially, if there's some sort of lease payment or a PPA agreement, then it's potentially harder to sell the property because whoever's the new owner has to take that on. What we found the easiest to sell is like if the building owner is actually using the energy, Let's say if it's a landlord and they're renting it out to the tenant, usually they're not paying for the energy. So that's why they're not focused on the solar. But what we're really trying to educate real estate developers is that it's another income stream that they could have, like potentially with their tenants having solar, either owning the system and doing a power purchase agreement, you know, that Pat talked a little bit about where they offered, it's in the lease, basically their energy payments and also too, like nowadays, tenants are looking to be in facilities that have some sort of green energy. So that is definitely, you know, very challenging, especially when the 
investment from our developer has a short hold period. But we, we see that's slowly changing just because companies have renewable energy goals and for marketing their properties. Great, thank you, we appreciate it. Thank you. Hi, this is Benoit, your host, the Solar Maverick Podcast. I would like to thank Infinity Energy Services for sponsoring the podcast. If you would like to learn more about Infinity Energy Services, go to their website, which is www.infinityenergyservices.net or contact Tom Laredo, who's their director of project origination. His number is 732-370-2446. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Solar Maverick Podcast. The Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar development and consulting firm. If you believe that this podcast is adding value to you, please give us a five-star review and share with those that you think could benefit from this information. Please email all questions, suggestions, and feedback to info at renewenergy.com. That's I-N-F-O at reneuenergy.com. The Solar Maverick Podcast is produced by Podcast Laundry and executive produced by Benoit Thangin and Kevin Y. Brown. 